Welcome back to Cognitive Revolution. I'm Cody Calmers, and this is my show about the personal side of the intellectual journey. So one thing that I've been thinking about recently is getting back to sort of a, um, you know, a routine of, of, of writing and publishing essays. So my main things that I work on are my PhD research, my podcast, which you're listening to now, uh, a book proposal that I'm working on, and then also, I guess, my Georgian language course that I'm taking. And, you know, now that I feel like all of those are going pretty well, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to get back into adding freelance essays into that, which I've, I've published previously, um, but sort of dropped off over the past year during the pandemic, just for reasons of, of, of productivity and, and not necessarily being inspired to write anything. And, and I feel like that's sort of changing now. And there's, there's something that I'm trying to reevaluate while uh, thinking about what I want that to look like going forward. And um, so the, the sort of standard model of how to do this is, well, you've got, you know, a bunch of magazines, uh, you know, so for example, before I've written for Nautilus, which I really like, and Scientific American and that sort of stuff. And so the standard model is that you pitch uh, the editors there an idea and be like, hey, I want to write a piece about this. And they say, okay, yeah, great. You know, like uh, change it a little bit like this and maybe interview some people and here's the deadline. Here's how much uh, we'll pay you. And here's uh, how many, what's the word count we want for it. And then uh, you just sort of do that. You get better at it. You get better gigs. You get more consistent gigs, get people asking you for it. That's what a sort of standard career for a freelance writer looks like. You know, uh, if, if, if you want to really make something out of it, maybe you can become like a staff writer at the Atlantic or something like that. That's sort of the culmination of it. But, um, you know, I'm sort of thinking like, okay, does that, what, what's, what role do I want this to play in, in what I'm doing in my career and how I want to grow as a, a writer and, and, and a producer of content, all that sort of stuff. And I'm, uh, as I'm thinking about alternatives to what that model looks like in the long term. And the basic question is, as a writer, who owns the distribution? And by that, I mean, um, you know, so for example, when you write for Nautilus or like, you know, when I've, when, I've, when I've written for a place like that in the past, it's like, okay, I go and I write this essay that I, you know, I'm proud of. And I think like, oh yeah, this, I, I you know, and I, I, you know, like, okay, yeah, I wrote a piece that I, I liked and then you give it to them and they give you money and that's like really exciting someone pays you to write it's great but then the trade-off is that you get a relatively large amount of people to read that piece but once people read that piece and say oh i really liked that they don't necessarily go and say oh well cody wrote that piece i guess i liked cody no, what they what they think for the most part is, well, uh, that piece was a Nautilus. I really like pieces from Nautilus, right? And of course, over time, you can build, uh, you know, sort of a reputation within a within a magazine and whatever. Though, uh, you know, it, it it might be easier to do that with extracurricular, um, you know, like books and that sort of stuff, not necessarily the magazine piece itself. But at any rate, the point is, is that the person who is benefiting reputationally from my writing is not necessarily me, but Nautilus, right? Because if, if people like what I've written, they're going to be further devoted to uh, the magazine, not to my work necessarily. And so the question would be, uh, if what's really valuable for a writer over time is building up this reputation, whatever you want to call it, following, audience, um, you know, readership, that sort of thing, how do you gain the maximum amount of control over it um, such that it scales, right? Because you can imagine that uh, if you grow as a writer, you're going to get paid more, but it's going to grow to some extent, you know, linearly with, uh, with, with pieces rather than oh, you know, right now, no one knows who I am as a freelance essay writer. And in the future, a bunch of people are. And um, cashing in on uh, an exponential growth uh, of, of that rather than a linear one, right? And so if you own your channels of distribution, uh, which is to say, you know, self-publishing in some some way or another rather than going through a traditional outlet like a magazine in the short term you have a smaller viewership so fewer people are going to care that i've written something if i write it for 
my blog rather than for a well-known publication. But in the long term, uh, there is a much greater chance. You are going to own way more of uh, essentially, I guess, the money of what your writing is making rather if, if you if you go with owning your own distribution rather than outsourcing it to a magazine, right? And this is why you see so many email newsletters pop up these days. A, a, a popular new format is Substack. Uh, so you probably know some writers who have a Substack newsletter where you can pay $350 a month for getting, you know, whatever they send out on their, you know, periodic basis. And that has to do with, uh, well, um, yes, to start off with, uh, if especially if you don't have a well-known following, you are not going to have as many people reading your stuff. But as that number grows, you get to keep a much, much, much larger of the percentage of um, the revenue that that writing is generating in Substack uh, by the subscription cost and that sort of stuff. And so that's just something I haven't figured out exactly what I'm going to do about it yet. But I think it's an interesting question to consider that we don't usually think about in in terms of certainly not in science, but even uh, not in, 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 you know, forms of content creation like writing and that sort of stuff. And so it's something that I'm thinking about as I, uh, you know, sort of get back into the game there and, and think about what I want that to look like, you know, not only over the next year, but over the next, you know, five, 10 years as um, my ability and audience and, and everything like that, that grows. So at any rate, uh, today's guest is Joe Henrik. He is the professor and chair of human evolutionary biology at Harvard University, uh, which is something that I knew about him before doing this interview. The thing that I did not know about him was that he looks like he's 26 fucking years old. The guy, yeah, it's kind of spectacular. He looks like he's younger than I am, um, which I had no idea uh, and uh, was kind of taken aback to see uh, initially. Uh, so there you go. Do with that information what you will. But at any rate, he's the co-author on a paper, uh, the, the weirdest people in the world, question mark. And uh, so it's just acronym Western Educated Industrialized Rich Democratic, uh, which is to say, you know, if you look at the people whom psychology experiments have been run on in the past, it's mostly this group of people, weird people, who are not representative of humanity as a whole, who are usually not uh, things uh, that are quantified by this acronym. And so it's one of the most influential papers in social science in the last 10 years. And he has a new book of the same title, essentially, expanding that theory and giving more context to how some of those psychological peculiarities came about. And yeah, it's a really interesting, you know, line of work, very influential and certainly of interest to me because it's, uh, it's, it's about, okay, we've got these differences between, you know, people's minds operate in a sense or the premises on which, you know, their, their systems are, are built what are those di- what do those differences actually look like how do we quantify them and what does it take to overcome them both in psychological research and just in our in our average understanding of other people who are different than ourselves especially if we are a weird individual trying to understand someone who is not necessarily weird so uh it was an interesting conversation and it was fun to learn a little bit more about his background and where some of these ideas came from and so without further ado here is joe henry And I'm, I guess I'm curious to know, uh, where did you grow up? Philadelphia. So I grew up just outside of Philadelphia. Wow. So and uh, what was your what was your family like? What did your parents do? What did you What did you get up to when you were uh, in Philadelphia? Well, my dad was a uh, a cost engineer. Um, so, but he had a history degree from St. Joe's University, St. Joseph's. Uh, but I was actually raised in my grandparents' house, and so my parents divorced when I was young. And so my grandfather built rail cars. My grandmother was a clerk at, at a department store called Sears. It's actually the catalog department. And my mother began as a part-time typist, but eventually rose up through the ranks to be a vice president. Nice. Uh, and then I know you studied aerospace and anthropology at Notre Dame. Where so is that, was that a combination that you went into college knowing that you were going to do? Or was that one you know that was sort of there before and you found the other what did that what did that look like 
Yeah, so I was always interested in aerospace engineering. I actually wrote, in eighth grade, we had to write about a career we might want to do. And I wrote about aerospace engineering. And that carried all the way through until I went to Notre Dame. So I went there just to study engineering. And then in my first year, as a kind of breadth requirement, so Notre Dame is pretty liberal artsy in the sense that you have philosophy requirements, theology requirements, and then lots of other kind of writing classes and stuff. So I took an anthropology class, I think it was called Adam's Ancestors. And I was interested in that enough that I went and Notre Dame is, has this cool uh, dual degree honors program. So I have a BA in anthropology and a BS in aerospace engineering. It's kind of an honors program. So I had to apply to kind of get into it and got into that. And then I did five years and I got the two degrees. So that's how I ended up in anthro. It was just kind of interest generated by one of those freshman year classes. Mm. Um, so, and then there's, there's, uh, both tracks play out going forward, right? So your your first job was in aerospace, right? Yeah, although the story there is that in my last year, I actually was interested in going to graduate school in both because I, I really gotten interested in space propulsion, but then I was also interested in anthropology. So at one point I had 10 applications for each uh, sitting on my desk and I was like, at first it seemed like a lot of work to fill out 20 applications in these different fields. So I decided not to do that and just to go get a job in aerospace engineering and then figure out what I wanted to do after that. I figured better to make a decision about what you want to do than just send out a lot of applications. So I ended up applying for a job and I got one in Washington, D.C., where I went to work for General Electric Aerospace. So how did that how did that job go? Right. Because it. If it went better, maybe there was no reboot and retool and go back to anthropology, right? Was it was it was it a function of how good the you how much you enjoyed the job, or did anthropology call to you? Uh, yeah, I think years? that's right. So uh, the job actually went quite well. I mean, as well as that job could have gone, I think it went. So uh, it was kind of an interesting thing. I spent the first three months in what they called the tank. So the job required a high level security clearance. And so you had to go get cleared. Now, fortunately, at 22 or whatever, I hadn't done very much. So the clearance process didn't take very long. And they started it when I was still at Notre Dame. Uh, but there were other people who were in the tank for a year or something if they were you know, coming to the job from a long previous career. And uh, so we did this secret stuff. And that was kind of cool. So something related to satellite operations. Um, I had lots of good friends, but I spent my spare time reading anthropology. And over the course of about a year, I decided that I really wanted to do the anthropology and started applying to that. But I mean, that job was going great. Uh, I could have continued to do that if I hadn't had this other calling. Yeah, yeah, I guess I don't doubt that. Um, what, who were you reading in anthropology during that interim time that sort of made you think, wow, okay, yeah, no, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go get the, the PhD in this. Do you remember who, who inspired yeah, you? Yeah, I mean, the, I read pretty widely, but um, I mean, the big person who always inspired me was uh, a cultural anthropologist named Marvin Harris. Mm. And Harris was, you know, he, he liked to do something that I still do, which is try to unravel these cultural puzzles. You'll see some unusual looking cultural practice, and you'll try to figure, well, how did that evolve? How, how did that come about? Uh, and he would do that with all kinds of things. So he tried to explain witches and why there are taboos on pigs and why the Aztecs eat, uh, eat human flesh, things like that. Yeah. Okay. Um, okay. So, right. So then, um, I've heard you talk about your experience in, in graduate school before, and you found anthropology kind of disappointing because it had gone down this rabbit hole of, of postmodernism and um, very, you know, sort of post gertzian uh, interpretive anthropology, uh, rather anti-scientific. So I'm kind of curious, what do you? And it sounds like you were drawn to the more concrete evolutionary, you know, uh, approaches to, to anthropology or, or, or at least, you know, on the ground functionalism like that. Anyway, the point is, what was the where? Why do you think that you were so the, what you expected anthropology to be was so different than what you found it to be? Well, I think what I didn't get, and you know, I was really ignorant at the time, is I didn't understand that there was a generational shift going on. So I knew that the postmodernism was part of anthropology, but the, there, I knew there were other parts like economic anthropology and uh, cultural materialism, cultural ecology, um, human behavioral ecology that were scientific, and I was interested in learning more about those. 
Um, but I didn't realize that what was happening in cultural anthropology, that all the old or the old guys were the ones that tended to do this stuff, even like cognitive anthropology. So Roy Dondrati, somebody like that, um, you know, were guys in their 50s at that point or something. Mm. And that, uh, you know, almost universally, the young people were postmodernist, interpretivist kind of anti-science. And so 20 years later, the discipline was going to look even more different. And this, you know, finding the scientifically oriented cultural anthropologist was going to get harder and harder. Yeah. Yeah, I think that that, uh, that to me is kind of a, a great tragedy of, of modern academia is that, you know, back in the, the 70s and, and 60s and that sort of stuff, there's a lot of promise between uh, cognitive science, anthropology at all. Uh, and then they realized they had dramatically different goals, I, I feel like, and wanted to pursue dramatically different methodological agendas. And uh, a lot of the problems that you have pointed out through uh, your career about psychology and, and behavioral science generally, I feel like have to do because the, the, the sort of anthropologist went off, gave the middle finger to the behavioral quantitative scientists, and we're like, we're basically going to do humanities over here in cultural anthropology. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, that, that to me is a great tragedy of, 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 of the modern sort of intellectual landscape of America. Yeah, and I see that as one of the things that, that I encourage my students to do in my lab to do. So there is this, you know, rich storehouse of insights and understandings of cultural diversity and, you know, the beginnings of research programs that you can find in anthropology before about 1975, uh, you know, and after that, but it, it kind of trails off as time goes by. And the discipline itself is forgetting about that stuff. Mm. So your average cultural anthropologist getting trained now hasn't read all of that stuff from the 1960s, or if they are, they're reading it to critique it rather than reading it to say, look, isn't this an interesting idea? Maybe we should follow up. So, you know, hopefully we're going to get to talk to my book, The Weirdest People in the World. Well, one of the key books in that is a book published in 1981 by Jack Goody, uh, where he looks at the kinship systems of Europe and says, something funny about these kinship systems. They don't look like the kinship systems we've seen everybody everywhere else in the world, anthropologists had seen. But contemporary anthropologists would never do that, right? That would require, you know, statistics and comparisons and all the kinds of stuff that those guys don't like. Um, absolutely. So, uh, but I think it sounds like a bright spot in your grad school experience was, was uh, Robert Boyd. So can you say a little bit about that relationship we learned from him? Yeah, so that was just a, a huge stroke of luck. I mean, when I was deciding on UCLA, I, I, interestingly, I mentioned Marvin Harris. I got my other competing offer was uh, a scholarship to go work with or, you know, a fellowship to go work with Harris at Florida. But Harris looked like he was going to retire and seemed kind of risky. And people were saying that this, the group at UCLA was just a lot stronger. And so I went to work with someone named Alan Johnson, who's a cultural ecologist, um, also does some, some psychological anthropology. And uh, and Boyd was there as well, who I knew. There was an, an archaeologist named Tim Earle, um, and some other some other. It was a really strong group, right? So I went there to to work. And in my first year, I was forced to take a class that I was trying to get out of. But uh, Boyd didn't accept the previous work I had had at Notre Dame, so I ended up taking a, a class on biological anthropology and kind of learned a bit about his work. And then by the end of first year, we were collaborating. I was writing a computer simulation. Wow. Um. Yeah, yeah, that that's great. Uh, it's God, that's so lucky that he didn't allow you to skip that class. Yeah. Um, and then uh, here's another thing. Did you ever think about quitting? Did you ever think about going back to engineering? Yeah, I mean, because what my grad school classes turned into was every class turned well, every class in cultural anthropology, which was most of them, turned into a debate about whether you could do a science of human behavior. Uh, and whether it made sense and, you know, was I, was I just involved in a colonialist project? Mm. So I got kind of tired about it. First, I was, you know, I was all full of excitement and enthusiasm to have that debate. But then you have the debate and you have the debate and you have the debate and you never make any progress uh, and you never convince anyone. And so you get kind of tired. Uh, and so I was kind of like, well, gosh, I'm not sure this is I'm kind of alone here. I'm not it's not looking so great. I mean, I was doing good on this, the stuff I was doing, but I didn't feel like there was a community. And it wasn't until uh, two years into my program that Boyd recruited two students, uh, Francisco Gil White and, and Richard McElrath. And they sort of re-energized me because, you know, here were two partners in crime. 
uh, with similar interests and whatnot. So, so that was important. Yeah. Okay. So you get the PhD. You um, you make that happen for better or worse. When do you feel like you start to get traction on a program of research uh, that you identify as you know like a yeah something something that is is meaningfully connected to to what you you came to do later on. Well, I think, I mean, we're starting to feel it. Uh, so I'm thinking here of, you know, kind of uh, Francisco, McElrath, um, and Boyd are there, and there's a few other students involved. You know, it's like 1995, so I'm just finishing my master's. And I've done the first behavioral game experiments in, uh, in Peru with the Machiganga. Uh, Francisco has gone to Mongolia and done some experiments with these Mongolians on, on ethnicity. And so we're, you know, we're reading the psychology literature. I'm reading the behavioral economics literature. Uh, Richard McElrath is building phylogenetic trees, which no one was doing at that time. And so, you know, the, the pieces are beginning to, we're beginning to see the pieces of the field that would eventually emerge. And I think we kind of understood where this could go. We, I mean, we didn't know it was going to be as successful as it turned out to be. Uh, but, but we could, I mean, because the, the dual inheritance framework it kind of has the slots there, right? It's just a matter of figuring out how to fill the slots. Mm. Yeah. Um, okay. So yeah. Um, here. Yeah. So here's a question. What's uh, what were the the books around this time that uh, you felt were, were were most influential to you? So you mentioned Marvin Harris. Uh, what other things in this sort of formative period? You, did you feel like really stuck with you? And it doesn't, also doesn't have to be uh, academic works. It can be you know novels, uh, memoirs, whatever. What stands out? Well, at this point, the sort of the canon that I'm reading and thinking about dual inheritance theory are the the Boyd and Richardson '85 book, and then Cavalli, Swartz, and Feldman, of course, has this famous 1981 book, uh, and Dorham has a book. I think it's the early '90s called Coevolution. So that's kind of like the first thing you got to do is read all those, all three of those books. And that actually, that was a case where the engineering paid off because I had enough of the math that I could, you know, look, I understood the models well enough. And then uh, I'm reading, I'm reading Eleanor Ostrom. So she has a book in the early 90s on games, behavior and, and cooperation and Kahneman and Tversky. So I'm reading there's an edited volume published in the early 80s that I'm looking at. So yeah, so kind of reading pretty interdisciplinary. I'm reading lots of economic anthropology, but I'm mostly dissatisfied with that. Like, I, I got to kind of know that stuff because that's the people I think I'm going to be arguing with. Um, but, yeah. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, and then, so where did, you, where did you go after UCLA? What was, what was the next professional step? So the next stop was uh, University of Michigan. So I got the three-year postdoc there. And that's where we, I, we talked about Dick Nesbitt. So the big thing there that I was, I met Dick and I began to connect with people like Scott Atran and uh, Justin Barrett and folks like that. Yeah. When did you first meet Colin Kammerer? So Colin, I probably met him in around, let's see, 1996, 1995. So after I went to Peru and did the first ultimatum game experiments with the Machiganga, I, Rob uh, Boyd was involved with this MacArthur group, so one of these network groups that has was mostly economists, behavioral economists, but then a variety of others. Martin Daly was involved, um, and Rob uh, Herb Ginta, Sam Bowles, and, and so Colin was part of that group. So I would have presented to that group, and Colin would have been there. So I would have met him then. Hmm. I also met Ed Glazer and David Labson, and uh, so there's a bunch of behavioral economists that I met. Ernst Fair. You know, I, I've always been interested in, in Colin's idea of the curse of knowledge in the paper, curse of knowledge in, in economic settings, and this idea that um, it's very difficult to uh, know or pretend uh, not to know what you already know, right? And, I'm, and uh, I feel like there is a little bit of a, a kind of underexplored version of that that applies to the, the cultural differences that have, um, you know, that you've studied. Because weirdness is almost a problem of the curse of knowledge, that you know all of the sort of, you know, the, the, fa the facets of your cultural milieu. You don't actually take the step back to, to think about what it'd be like not to have those. 
Uh, and that's one of the reasons, or you could, you could sort of imagine a link between that and why psychologists could have undervalued cultural uh, variation and, and, and that sort of stuff uh, in their research is sort right. of as a, as a problem of, of the curse of knowledge, of, of not knowing what it's like not to know what you already know. Yeah, I kind of, one of the other metaphors I've used to think about that is just the fish in water. So the fish doesn't know that he's surrounded by water, right? Because he's, he's so used to the water, he's built for the water, and he doesn't, if he's never been out in the air, then he thinks that the world is just water, right? Yeah. So that's kind of like culture. We're swimming in it so we don't realize how much it's influencing us until we move into another culture, and then suddenly things begin to stand out that we wouldn't have noticed otherwise. This is one of the things that I think is such a tragedy that cultural anthropology hasn't gotten on board because there's such a value to going to a society where people think about the world very differently from you because you get everything gets thrown into stark relief. Um, but even cultural anthropology now, it's almost improper to go study people who are very different from yourself. You're supposed to study like your hometown or something. Um. You know, you might be more, almost certainly more familiar with this than I am, but uh, one of, uh, there's an early Gordon Alpert paper uh, with Tom Pettigrew where they actually go to South Africa and do uh, a perceptual illusion, trapezoid illusion, uh, hmm. on with a group of Zulu. And uh, I believe that paper is, that's uh, early 50s, mid 50s, um, between Gordon Alpert and, and, and Tom Pettigrew. But, you know, the basic thrust of that paper, um, which, of course, you know, people read papers by those guys. So it wasn't it would, certainly at the time it wouldn't have been an unknown paper uh, was that there are these really like, you know, like trapezoid visual illusion. That's really, really low level. And we see cultural variation in that. And, um, you know, I, I think. Um, uh, you know that that's something that you've had to point out to to psychologists. Look, even even this low level stuff. But the psychologist should not have an excuse if that paper was published back in the fifties and people were already pointing that out with strong experimental evidence. You know. Yeah. No. It's it's a little bit of a mystery. I mean, I feel like the well. Well. So one idea I've had on that is that the cognitive revolution was was so strong and so powerful. And it comes with this digital computer metaphor. Yeah. And the digital computer metaphor, there's hardware and software. So the assumption was is there's just a bunch of hardware out there. And we're psychologists. We're interested in the hardware. Uh, and, and I guess that it gets imported. And then it's easy to be blind to all this stuff that seems to be going on at the edges. Uh, but So I, I trace it back to before the cognitive revolution. Certainly the cognitive revolution and that ultimate divergence between cognitive science and anthropology did not help and was in line, but I think it goes back closer to um, sort of like the philosophical assumptions of William James and uh, people in that period, right? Um, because if uh, psychology is the study of the faculties of, of the human mind, human reasoning, consciousness, uh, etc., which is that was around the time that, you know, so psychology was solidifying its place uh, with that, then it's really difficult to describe in those terms why you would expect something like working memory or whatever to, to, to vary, right? Because we right. are working with what in theory should be the same hardware as you're saying in the, in the cognitive core uh, across everyone. And so to me, that's how you can have sort of kind of an intellectual ascent that it's like, oh yeah, you know, definitely it seems like running experiments on undergraduates ad infinitum has certain limits. Um, but not emotionally feel like, well, I really have to go out and test other people to get to the um, core questions that I'm interested in. Because in the heritage of that, you know, sort of Jamesian psychology of, of the individual, um, it's really difficult to come up with an emotionally compelling reason why you would not be able to find the psychological phenomenon uh, that you have discovered in one population or another. Uh, they should totally transfer in a sort of, uh, hmm. you know, deep-seated, intuitive way. Yeah. I, one of the reasons I thought about that cognitive revolution thing is I, just, I felt like, <clears throat> I haven't made a study of this, so uh, I could be totally wrong, but I felt like that psychologists were collaborating more with anthropologists it, so, you know, you have you have Margaret Mead and you have Ruth Benedict 
and they seem to be influencing psychology. You have this collaboration between Melville Herskovitz and Segal in that Illusions book, the Visual Illusions book in the 60s. And then I feel like by the 80s, that's evaporating. Although there is the kind of Michael Cole, <clears throat> Barbara Rogoff tradition, which seems to have very little influence on mainstream psychology now, but but is this other lineage within you know the 1980s and whatnot? Um, so this is actually the I make something that I'm making a study of uh, right mm. now is is the history of these interdisciplinary weavings uh, in, oh, ins and out okay. and that sort of stuff. And so the uh, without getting we'll get back to uh, you know the, the the book in a minute, but just to make a, an aside on this, yeah, yeah, I'd love to hear more about this. The um, I to me the epicenter of that interdisciplinary. Uh, and meshing was this uh, department at Harvard called the Department of Social Relations. Um, and so this was founded in 1946 um, by Talcott Parsons, sociologist, Gordon Alpert, social psychologist, and then, you know, uh, Clyde Cluckholm, uh, uh, cultural anthropologist, a couple other people. Um, and it lasted through the 70s. And if you look at the people who came through there, um, those people are all big names in their respective fields, um, but you also have um, uh, a, a lot of people like you know Rick Schwader uh, did his PhD there, came up with you know uh, you know the, his, his his stuff in, in cultural anthropology. Clifford Gertz uh, went there for for graduate school. Mark Granabetter from sociology. So a lot of people who came up with central mm-hmm. ideas. In that it came to be the sort of pillars of their disciplines that were drawn from a multidisciplinary perspective, um, were trained by uh, the, in this sort of Cold War uh, environment where interdisciplinary interdisciplinarity was highly prized. Um, another thing that gets uh, overlooked in the story of the Cognitive Revolution, as told by you know like Howard Gardner and that sort of stuff, is how much the social scientists already hated the behaviorists before the cognitive scientists got there. So Talcott Parsons, writing in like, you know, late 30s and that sort of stuff, and some of the people that I've met, and Gordon Alpert, even, um, uh, uh, um, what is it, Nature of Prejudice, those were highly cognitivist books before what we think of as uh, the conventional cognitive evolution. And so um, it was actually the people who were studying social stuff that realized, um, you know, sort of the... Me- the mental world, the world of human psychology, that sort of stuff, was more than just the behaviorist stimulus uh, response and that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. And a key aspect of that is that we typically locate um, the beginning of cognitive evolution with people like Jerry Bruner and um, uh, George Miller, uh, mm-hmm. rightly so. Um, but who trained them? They were they came out of the Department of Social Relations. Um, okay. uh, Gordon Alpert uh, trained. Uh, 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 so um, that was the sort of high watermark of um, interdisciplinarity in the 20th century for the social sciences, uh, with Harvard being the microcosm uh, that, it, um, you know, sort of is true of, 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 of a larger academic landscape. Uh, and uh, it, so it's interesting to see what brought that together. And then with that being the high watermark, seeing why that did not was not able to be sustained in the way that it was. Fascinating. Yeah. Anyway, uh, <laughs> so your your big paper, really the big the big paper, kind of of the last decade in the behavioral sciences, is is your your weird paper, um, Western educated industrialized rich democratic. I I understand that the idea for that paper came between a lunch. Uh, with you and your co-authors, was that a lunch where that happened, or was that a series of lunches, or what? What was the, what? Yeah, tell, say more about what did that look like when you and your co-authors got together and started talking about that. Yeah, so uh, it actually, so I think there's a good bit of interdisciplinarity here. So uh, just as background, I was a, a faculty member in anthropology, a culture hired as a cultural anthropologist, and I was recruited to the University of British Columbia. The folks in the anthropology, so naturally the dean, it was a dean's level recruitment, um, thought I would go in the anthro department. So they shopped me to the anthro department. I gave a talk. Uh, the anthropologists hated me. They were like, I mean, no I thanks. Equations, pass pass on this one. What's that? Pass on this guy. Right, pass on this guy. So they, they, it was a free position too, so they, they really hated me. 
Um, but the dean was not deterred because she wasn't impressed by their counter arguments or their arguments against me. So she shopped me to psychology and economics. I did job talks in both of those. They said, sure, we'll take a part of him or however much he wants. And so I split my position uh, 60, uh, two thirds in psychology, one third in economics. And so my colleagues, since my best colleagues in, in psychology were Steve Heine and Arne Orn Zion, closest in terms of our substance. And so uh, we started going to lunch sometimes together, so a series of lunches. And we each noticed that in our areas of specialization, not only was there interesting patterns of variation, but that the, the, the participants most studied by psychologists, the weird people, were at the extreme end of the distribution. So that's when we teamed up and mm -hmm. began comp compiling the, the, all the evidence we could find to address this question. Um, who, which of you came up with the acronym WEIRD? Well, I don't know if there's a clear answer to that question, but one important piece of the puzzle is that I had the title at the beginning. So the weirdest people in the world. But mm. at that point, weird wasn't an acronym yet. Yeah. It was just a characterization of the data pattern we were yeah. seeing. So then we got, so we wrote a draft and I wrote the first draft and I was struggling rhetorically because I had to refer to the common subjects, right? And so I was calling them like American undergraduates or Western undergraduates. I, you know, these, I wanted a label. And so we sent it out and we got some feedback. And some of the feedback says, you need something, you need some way, catchy way to call them. And then I, we should ask Ara and Steve, but I don't remember whether one of us had the idea or maybe one of our readers had the idea of turning weird into an acronym. And then we turned it in and initially we thought maybe Rich was going to be religious because you Americans are more religious than other Western groups. Uh, but we decided to go with Rich. Mm. Um, this is a totally flippant question, but what fraction of citations does that paper get if you didn't come up with the most perfect uh, acronym <laughs> of all time? Yeah, I, the acronym does seem to catch people's attention. Because um, so. that, that almost makes it less of a scientific finding and more of a symbol, right? Because when people talk about that paper, uh, yeah, of course there's data in that paper, but they talk about it as a diagnosis, as this is, this stands for this problem in psychology. And we can talk about, you know, like the specific version that me as a researcher, I'm interested in, in, in this and, and how it applies to my area of study. but. I think uh, the paper, one of the glorious, glorious things about it is that it stands as the symbol of this problem. And that is much harder of a sell to be a symbol if you don't have the acronym, you know? The acronym, right. Yeah, the, uh, it's worth also uh, noting that I was somewhat against the acronym because one of the things I noticed as an outsider coming into social psychology was that social psychologists like to be, they like cutesy. They like to do things that are kind of catchy and cute and playful. And that, ha that hasn't been my style. Um, I was eventually persuaded, and I was persuaded mostly because uh, as someone who wrote a lot of the prose, it, rhetorically, it just worked so well. It gave me a nice catchy word, that, you know, it, and which conveys the point I want to make about this population. And so it all kind of buried it all in there. So that was really nice rhetorically. So that sold me on it. Yeah. Um... Right, and then so that, that paper takes on a, a life of its own. And then uh, it was in 2016, the secret of our success came out. So was, is there, is it possible to triangulate uh, your, your book that just came out um, by saying, okay, here's the, the, the concept of weird uh, and being able to build off of that. And then um, you know, here is your uh, first trade book, and then you know they sort of the the two having done the two things kind of merges together. Is there is there is there a line between all those things? Yeah, there's there's a line in a couple different ways. The first is that you know as I was working on lots of stuff besides just the weird the weird people paper, and I felt like I needed to synthesize all that in one place. But then after the weird paper came out, I also wanted to be able to try to explain some of this variation that we'd begun to begin to document. And so I really was focusing on that. So at one point, I got approached by this literary agent. And uh, he, he was encouraging me to think about writing a book on weird people. So I gave, gave it a lot of thought. And I also wanted to write this other book about, um, you know, kind of putting together all we've learned about cultural evolution. 
So I ended up writing a proposal, which he sold, that had part one as essentially what became the secret of our success, and mm. part two as what became the weirdest people in the world. Long ass And I worked book. on it. For, yeah, so that's what I sold. I worked on it, and then the secret of our success just clearly became its own thing. And I remember I had to go. I was in New York, living in New York at the time. I was, I was visiting John Haidt at the business school at NYU. And so I could actually go and physically see my, my publisher. And I gave him the pitch and told him what was happening. And I said, look, I'll give you the first book, The Secret of Our Success, for free. Uh, you know, you don't have to know advance or anything. And then I'll just deliver the second book later. So first I kind of convinced him, but then that went up the chain and down the chain. And I guess the, the big shots on high said, no, we don't want the first book. So my, my agent sold The Secret of Our Success to Princeton, hmm. which is why it came out at Princeton. And part of the deal was kind of like, you know, we have this contract, and so you can't sell this to another trade publisher. You have to sell it to an academic press. Oh, interesting. And so the, yeah. the compromise was Princeton's trade line. Yeah. So that's why The Secret, because it's, and if, I don't know if you noticed, the style's exactly the same. I mean, it's just, I have a style, and that's what it is. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so it's, it's, they're both equally accessible. It's not like one's more accessible than the other. And then I went on to, to write The Secret, to, to write The Weirdest People in the World. Yeah. Um, that's really cool. But so, they're, they're actually two volumes. Like, of course, yeah. I wrote it, so they're standalone. But you really should read The Secret of Our Success and then The Weirdest People. So can you say a little bit more about that? Because I'm kind of seeing it now. But uh, can, you just, can you just draw that, draw that out a little bit more? Well, um, yeah, because I mean, I, part of it is just planning fallacy. So I thought that I could you know, write more succinctly and do the secret of our success in, you know, 150 pages or something like that. But, Can you just say uh, a little as, bit about what that book uh, is? And the, I guess maybe say a little bit about the arguments of the two books for, for people that haven't, haven't. So in my mind, in order to get to the weirdest people in the world, you need a, a full theory of cultural evolution, of how people acquire ideas, of how that shapes our biology mm, yeah. and our brains, influences our hormones, shapes our brains. Um, let's see the world differently. And why is it our species is so different from other species in terms of the impact of, of those kinds of things of institutions and languages on our minds. So I tried to put all that together in the secret of our success. And then the weirdest people in the world is very much an application. So it's kind of like an ethnography. Uh, so we have this basic framework, secret of our success. Oh, here's a curious population, uh, European descent, cultural populations. What, what happens if we apply this framework to them? weirdest people in the world yeah that that's fantastic i love that um okay i'm interested in the mechanics of uh writing a trade book and that sort of stuff so what um what what time of day do you did you write do you what do you do you have a consistent uh when you were uh dedicating a large portion of your time to to working on this book what time of day did you write what did those writing sessions look like yeah, I don't have, like some people would like to write in the morning. And I, if I'm trying to get something done, I might just do morning writing. But when I was going full at this, like when I was at NYU, uh, it's a full day and I'm doing both reading and writing. Hmm. So I might write for a couple of hours and then I'll have some, you know, there'll be three papers I need to read before I can write the next paragraph. And then I'll spend the next couple hours reading the papers and then I'll try to write the next paragraph. I may not get to it. It may be the job for the next morning. How linear was the, so, okay, so two, two, two similar questions. When you sort of, because you thought about a big picture structure into which this book was sort of the second half, like we were just talking about, was the structure of what the book needed to say immediately clear from you when you started in on it? Well, I did have a structure. Now that the structure modified. So the good thing about having to write a proposal for a literary agent is that you, you have to make an outline. Yeah. Uh, and so you actually have chapters with descriptions of those chapters. I deviate from that, um, but not hugely. Yeah. Uh, so like, for example, the, in the weirdest people in the world starts out with uh, a prelude about reading, which actually was used to be in chapter 17 or something. But I thought it was a good way to start the book. I yeah. see it as like the scene in the movie that you start with and then you get to that scene later in the movie. It's supposed to be like that because it's about Protestantism. Yeah. Um, but I write very non-linearly. So what I did with the weirdest, well, so when I was writing the whole thing and I thought it was one book, I was actually simultaneously reading stuff about the industrial revolution and about innovation while I was also researching earlier stuff. So that just varied from week to week. 
Uh, but when I really geared in and I was just writing The Weirdest People in the World, I started with the chapter on European history and kinship, which is chapter five. And I wrote five, six, seven, and eight because that was the stuff I knew the least. And so I needed to like read everything I could find on European medieval kinship and, how the, and that whole medieval history. Uh, so basically I started with the hardest thing. Mm. And because I knew I could do the early stuff, right? The early stuff in the book is either evolution of human societies, which was what I studied in graduate school, or it was summary of secret of our success, or it was chapter one, which is basically the weird people paper updated. Um, so, this, you know, I knew I could do that. So I focus on the hardest thing. What were you most surprised to find uh, during the course of your research? Maybe it was in one of those chapters that you were least familiar with, but what's, uh, what, was, what was something that you either didn't know or didn't know very much about? You're like, oh, wow, this is actually like, uh, this is big for the thesis, for the argument, for, for that sort of stuff. Does anything come to mind like that? Yeah, the, well, there's a, actually a whole bunch of things um, that I didn't anticipate in the outline. Uh, one is that there's a, there's a section after chapters, it's, it's like chapters six, seven, and eight. Uh, sorry about this beeping. No worries. Um, trying to shut all my calendars. Chapters six, seven, and eight uh, are where I'm laying out the evidence showing that kinship and the church has influenced people's psychology today. So I wrote those initially, tapping into various work in economics that links family ties to various outcomes like trust. And the argument was much looser, but about 2016, I met Jonathan Schultz and I got involved with some economics uh, economists, <clears throat> Jonathan Beauchamp, Duman uh, Barani Rod, and we were able to actually get measures of these things. And we wrote this science paper, which now is you know, translated into some of the chapters in the book, uh, where we're able to link kinship in the church very quantitatively and systematically in ways that directly test the hypothesis. Uh, so that I didn't know we were going to be able to do. I thought I was just going to have to piece together uh, kind of fragments of a puzzle. And then I also didn't totally understand in European history the role of uh, voluntary institutions. So as I read more medieval history, it became clear that voluntary institutions, guilds, universities, charter towns were a big thing. And that fit into my argument really well in a way that I didn't anticipate. So what, um, <clears throat> so what is a voluntary institution in contrast to? So that's like you can choose your university or your guild, but you can't choose your family. You can't choose the city you were born in. What are, what are involuntary institutions? Uh, sorry, voluntary institutions. Yeah. I mean, but so, like, that's voluntary institutions, guilds, universities, et cetera. What is, what is the opposite of that? Oh, the opposite is uh, all the, the groups that you're involved with as a consequence of birth. Hmm. So <clears throat> in, you know, the, one of the cases the book makes is that in most human societies, we're born into these extensive family networks. So they're called clans or tribes or uh, kin groups. And you can't easily switch. Um, and that prescribes your relationships and responsibilities and obligations to a network of relatives. It might be to ancestors, to pieces of land. Uh, it also affects even the voluntary friends you make. So you're going to tend to make friends through some kind of network of contacts. You're going to tend to find mates, so marriage partners through this network. Uh, so it determines a whole bunch of things about your life, as opposed to the voluntary world, where you can move to a town that you join as a citizen. This is medieval Europe maybe join a guild um, there and that they're going to take care if you get injured, they'll take care of you when you get old. So, you know, they do some of the basic functions that kin based institutions did uh, for most people over most of human history. And so the uh, one of the big things that um, contributed to weird psychology is the establishment and proliferation of these voluntary institutions, which are going to be much more prevalent in uh, European and Western society. Uh, after medieval as uh, opposed to traditional societies. That, that's the basic outline of the argument. Yeah, the basic idea is, yes, um, to re-describe a little bit. So the um, <clears throat> dismantling of European complex kinship, so things like kindreds, leaves mostly monogamous nuclear families in some parts of Europe. So as a kind of practical functional matter, people have to solve some of the same problems. 
So what are, what's going to happen to orphans? What's going to happen to women after their husbands die? What happens when you get old? What happens if you get injured? So one of the first things that these voluntary organizations do is they provide for these social safety nets. Yeah. All right. So uh, Weirdest People in the World's big, comprehensive, great book deals with a lot of these uh, problems that you've been thinking about for somewhere between the last decade and your entire career. What? Looking forward into the future, what would you like to see from psychology uh, 10 years? Where would you like to see psychology 10 years from now? If you could institute policies that are going to overcome some of the issues that you have identified about us, you know, psychologists only being able to generalize about, you know, weird people and that sort of stuff and, and fixing those problems, where would you like to see the fields a decade from now? Yeah, so I think that uh, it's it's as a practical matter, it's not very hard for people to set up research labs in communities and through collaboration and and in lots of ways, they can set up collaborations in diverse populations uh, and then they can collect data and, you know, really begin to think about how culture varies across society. So, you know, in the book, I put out some some ideas. There's going to be tons of other things that I didn't think of that can lead and explain psychological variation. And just, you know, you have to, psychologists have to move away from this idea that they need to get subjects from the internet or get subjects from, uh, from the university students because we need observational data and we need experimental data and we need to know what life in that place is like. So just a kind of different model. Now all the basic tools are there. It's just a matter of creating the incentives. Um, so one of the things that young psychologists face, which I think is a big problem, is this pressure to publish so rapidly. <clears throat> and this isn't a feature, <clears throat> excuse me, of, of modern academia. I know that because in economics, uh, an economics graduate student doesn't have to publish any papers before they get their first job. Whereas a young psychologist should have you know, some papers published before they even get their PhD. So it's just about the norms of the discipline. Um, and I think there's a, some modest changes one could make uh, they could really push things in that direction. Uh, what are some examples of those incentive and structural changes uh, that you think are highest priority? Well, at the journal level, you could just forcing people to qualify their generalizations. So psychologists want to be able to talk about human psychology. And if you don't let them, you have to generalize from your sample. Well, what's your sample? Um, that's going to force change. At the level of tenuring, if you tell people they've got to turn in their 10 best papers for tenure and we're not going to count anything else or 20, you know, pick your favorite number, pick whatever you think is the appropriate number. Um, that would stop people from doing the, these paper treadmills where they try to run up their number of publications. Instead, you've got until tenure to produce the 10 best papers you can produce. Uh, I think that would create that would eliminate some waste. I'll tell you what, as a graduate student in psychology who's interested in, in cross-cultural variation specifically, I am quite disappointed with the fact that field work is very hard to do in an experimental psychology um, uh, department. Say nothing of the fact that there is a pandemic that prevents all sorts of things uh, from going on, but just uh, definitely as a desideratum, the idea of normalizing field work in psychology. Uh, and uh, yes, it's expeditious to do everything on MTurk and prolific and the internet and that sort of stuff. But um, I definitely would love to do that personally going forward is if I'm going to make academia work for me, I think I would very much want to have the opportunity to do psychological research in a field site, sort of like a psychologist, uh, a uh, anthropologist, um, uh, you know, has their field sites where they get to know the specifics of, of, of that location and that group of people and, and that sort of stuff. So I would love to see psychology um, uh, grow in that direction and also to be a part of it, you know. And I think <clears throat> just building off what I was saying, I think one way to get that, that ethnographic work, that quantitative and qualitative field work can really I mean, that really does inform our understanding of these psychological phenomena. So if a good paper, you had to have an explanation for, for how this got into people's heads, right? So say you find some cultural variation, where's that coming from? 
you might need to study children as they're growing up in different environments to begin to even get a sense for how it is that growing up in one place leads you to think differently about this compared to growing up in another place. So you might need developmental data, for example. Um, and if you need that to have one of the top papers or to have a paper that's really impressive for your 10, say, uh, then you would need to de develop feed work or develop collaborations with people who do do field work mm. in different places. Um, so I guess I'm just trying to see, I'm trying to make this incentive compatible. I mean, my, students I trained in psychology were able to do field work, but it's definitely a strain because if you're spending two or three months on a remote island in the Pacific, um, you know, you're not zipping through hundreds or thousands of MTurk subjects. Yeah. Um, there's another direction that you've recently described for psychology, and this uh, we can sort of end in this uh, area over here for the last couple of minutes. That's your paper on uh, psychology as a historical science with uh, Michael Muthukrishna and Edward Slingerland. Can you say a little bit about what the basic argument is there and, uh, you know, kind of how that ties into to some of the, the, the cross-cultural stuff that we've been talking about? Yeah, so that's the other big area. So there's the kind of synchronic, uh, to use anthropolo anthropological parlance, uh, synchronic analysis of comparing different societies. But then we have written corpuses from many different societies now. And these are increasingly available in digital form. And I was skeptical of this at first, but at least our preliminary investigation suggests that you really can get some sense of psychological differences by studying textual corpora. So something like measures of tightness and looseness or measures of kind of moral universalism versus parochialism, the kind of things you get from John Haidt's foundations, um, measures of individualism. Uh, we seem to get measures from, say, U.S. newspapers that correlate with psychological measures of tightness or individualism uh, across states or something like that. So I guess I've become convinced that real psychological data can be extracted. Now, of course, you know, a lot of times it's going to be elites, so we can only study the psychology of elites going back in time. Well, you do what you can, but I mean, for, in some cases you can get below below the elite level, depending on the corpus. Um, so my lab is looking at the Latin corpus now, and we're also looking at the corpus of, of U.S. newspapers, which goes back to 1840. And there we're getting quite sensible data on tightness, individualism, and moral universalism. And that gives us spatial and temporal variation in those psychological measures so we can understand what historical forces are shaping those. Yeah, so I guess the proxy for temporal vari psychological variation has been spatial variation, right? Kind of the idea that if a, you know, hunter-gatherer tribe that lives like, you know, people used to live X amount of time uh, ago, that gives us an idea of, of what we would have like, looked like back then. And so that, that's a proxy for, for t temporal variation. Um, but what you're saying is by looking at actual historical documents and doing big data analysis, natural language processing, uh, you know, maybe like uh, the, using the semantic vectors and that sort of stuff that they have from, from AI, which are ins fucking insane, um, you can start to unearth some much more direct um, his, historical, temporal variation in human psychology. Yeah. yeah. So I have a student, Kevin Hong, who uh, reads ancient Chinese. So he's starting to mine the corpora in China. I got a postdoc who's, working on, who's a Latin reader, Latin expert. He's, he's looking at the Latin corpus. And then I got an economist working on the U.S. newspapers. Hmm. So uh, we'll see what we come up with. Yeah. Using those techniques. I, that's that's one thing that I suspect is that um, psychologists have underexplored uh, language models from AI in their in their research. Um, something that uh, recently I was talking to Mazarin Banaji, and she's got students who are working on um, uh, using uh, these sort of things. I actually did uh, in my undergraduate quite a bit of um, computational language research using. Uh, these large corpora analyses where you take the first billion words of Wikipedia and then you learn semantic vectors uh, for each of the individual tokens in there. Um, mm -hmm. I 
uh, wasted my time using those to model jazz improvisation data uh, as opposed to solving actual uh, you know intellectual problems in the world. But um, I've been familiar with those models for you know over a, a half decade now and how they've changed and what they can do. And I think that that's something that we're going to see uh, a large growth in in psychology, which. Uh, your uh, and your co-author's conception of psychology, historical science, I think is certainly in line with. So, sounds good. Sounds good, Joe. Thank you very much for taking the time to do this uh, today. I really enjoyed talking to you. Uh, I've enjoyed your work and your book. Uh, so, thank you for uh, taking the time to do all that. Great chatting with you, Cody. Cool. See ya. Bye. That was my conversation with Joe Henrik. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed. If you did, uh, you can go ahead and subscribe to Cognitive Revolution through whichever platform you'll be listening through. You can also keep in touch with me uh, on Twitter at Cody Commerce or through my email newsletter, which you can find at CodyCommerce.com. So thank you for listening, and I'll be back here next week with another episode of Cognitive Revolution.